It's good to be with you here this morning. Um, if I start uh, breaking out into coughing fits, I'm sorry. I'm not uh, feeling very well today. Um, but we will make sure we get through this. Uh, we, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we please open them up to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5 verses 18 is the passage that we're going to be looking at. Matthew chapter 5 verse 18. Uh, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount for some time. And uh, we're going to uh, be looking at uh, another verse this morning to be unpacking that. Um, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Um, it's just one verse, so I'm going to read it twice. Actually, let's read verse 17 and 18 at the same time. It says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. That's what the verse we looked at last week. This week it says, For truly I say to you, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Let's read that last verse again. And truly, this is Jesus, when he says, and truly, he's, he's being serious here. I say to you, not uh, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it all is accomplished. Lord, we come before you this morning uh, because we just desire more of you. That's what we want. We gather here together as uh, your sons and daughters in Christ uh, because we wanted to meet with our Father, because we want to know more of Jesus. And so we pray that as we dive into your word, that this would not just be something that we do on a Sunday, but that there would be life that comes from this. There is life in you. There is life in Christ. And so this is what we want. We want more of Jesus because that's where life is. So show us Jesus, we pray. Um, I, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, lead my words, that they would not be my own. Uh, my words don't change lives. But yours do. So would you just would you speak this morning? Would you go forth and achieve your purpose and send your word out, like Isaiah 55 verse 11 says, go out and achieve its purpose, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. I hope you got your thinking caps on this morning. Um, we've got quite a passage that we're going to be uh, looking at. But I just want um, for us to be reminded of where we are in this thing. And I'm going to take every opportunity every week to remind us that as Christians, we are primarily followers of Christ. That's what we are. As Christians, we are seen as followers or disciples of Jesus. Remember at the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus goes up that mountain and it's those who follow him that come and hear the word that is spoken. Those who desperately want Christ, those who want more of him, that's what we are. And Jesus will go on the Sermon of the Mount and he will define what the characteristics of this disciple, this follower looks like. And he talks about the Beatitudes. And he starts to say amazing things about the Beatitudes. That if we are poor in spirit, we will inherit the kingdom of God. That if we do certain things, we will see God. That we will receive mercy ourselves. That we will be called sons and daughters. That we will receive comfort. These amazing blessings that come with pursuing Jesus. The person will be truly blessed if they have these characteristics in their lives. This does not mean, though, that life will be easy, that life will be a walk in the park, but though it might be difficult, the person who decides to pursue Jesus, they will find true happiness, true blessedness and satisfaction in him. Isn't that awesome? 
And as a result of that, the person, the outworking of these things in the person's lives means we become vastly different to what the world looks like. Very, very different. And Jesus uses two imageries. He, he used, uh, we are the salt of the earth. That we as Christians bring some flavor to the world. We bring some flavor of Jesus in the world that is decaying. We bring some thirst for the living water, Jesus himself. So we as Christians who are living out these beatitudes, we start to make people go, man, I want some of that. But one of the primary things of being salt is that we stop the decay. We, uh, we stop the decay of the world. Uh, and as a result, we as Christians, we look out and see the injustices that are going on in this world and we stop it. We are actively involved. We are salt that does and makes a difference. But Jesus also uses the imagery of light. He says, you are the light of the world. And light is a little different to where salt stops the decay. Light breaks forward. Light goes in and changes. There's an advancing with the light. And so as Christians, we live boldly. We're not timid. We're not timid people that just sit back and let our light shine in a corner where no one can see us. No, we're in the middle of the room. Boldly shining our light so that all can see, that all can see the hope of the world, the, the light of the world, Jesus Christ. And as we do this as individuals in our work, in our play, and in our life, in every aspect, we are individually, we are lights that shine brightly in places where other lights would not shine if we did not. But also we do this corporately. As a city sit on a hill, many lights not hidden for all to see no matter what the world tries to say. They cannot deny us. They cannot say that we do not exist because they see this light shining brightly. But on top of that, what we, we saw when we started speaking about last week is that we realized that the disciples were probably wondering, what, where's the law in this? In the whole of these Beatitudes, Jesus is talking about this radical life, this radical ministry, one that is vastly different to anything that they They were going to be able to see God. They were going to have a pure heart. They were going to be able to enter the kingdom, receive the comfort from God, be called sons and daughters of God. And yet, nowhere does he mention the law. Nowhere does he quote scripture. And they would start to wonder, is he trying to abolish this thing? Is he going to throw away the law? Is he trying to get rid of it? Not use it. And Jesus, perceiving this, says, no, 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 no. I have not come to abolish it. I have not come to get rid of the law. I've come to fulfill it. All the law, all, every part of it, all the law, all the prophets, they speak about me. They point to me. I have come to fulfill it. I have done it. I have accomplished it. And we'll look a little bit more about that this morning. And so we spoke about last week, there's this importance for us in, in two things that, that came out. One, when we look at the Old Testament, we must not just see it as a book that has no value to us, but there's value in it. Why? Because it points to Jesus. The Old Testament is all about him. And so if we are to be these followers of Christ who are going to pursue him and desire him, there's this need for us to go into this Old Testament and look for Christ, search for him, find it's tough and difficult, but going up the mountain was never easy. And so we look for him in it and we find this Jesus. The second thing is also that we as Christ was a obedient person who was under the law. While we might not be under the law, we'll look at that this morning but we are characterized by faithfulness and obedience. 
we are characterized by faithfulness and obedience. But we're still left with this begging question this morning. What is our relationship with the law? Now as Jesus has come, what is the relationship with the law that we have as Christians? What do we have to do with it? And secondly, how long does the authority of the law last for? Those are the two questions we're going to try and ask this morning. And you might be going, Joe, man, why are we even going to consider those questions? Let's go on to something else. This seems a bit tedious. But there, there's two, two aspects on why I want us to focus on this this morning. One is there is in our city a false teaching going around, and it is quite strong. It, a few years ago, it was very strong. It's, we, there's still people who follow it and, and practice it. But they are called Torah Christians or Torah-observing Christians, or followers of Yeshua. And they would argue that they are, we need to go back as Christians to the Old Testament. As Christians, we need to come and we need to be obedient to the law, to certain aspects of it. We need to start doing those things again. And their premise is and their argument is that the New Testament scriptures in which we hold dear to, in which we as fellow believers in Christ think is inspired word of God, they would go, no, they're wrong. There's error in them. They've been messed with. They've been changed, and therefore we can't trust them. And so, therefore, the only scripture in which we can trust is the Old Testament. And the argument is, therefore, we must live by the Old Testament. Yes, we have Jesus. We have him. But we also need to do a number of different things. And the problem with this is their prime target is not those who are lost, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But their prime targets are those who desire to please Jesus, who desire to please God. Because it's only a person who desires to please God that would ever think, let's go back under the law, right? They would say to you, man, you are not doing it right. You are not right with God. You have to be doing these things. And if you desperately want to be right with God, it is only then that you go into start doing those law things, start practicing those things. Because you desperately want to be right with God. And so they come and they pick on people like us. Man, we want to be right with God. And so they come and they argue with you. And, and as your pastor and the elders of the church, have this, uh, Matt spoke about this last week, is that there is this need for us to, and our, our plea with you would be not to even entertain them. Because our foundation of what we believe in comes from the New Testament. And they've discarded that. There's very little conversation that you can have where they can well, believe you and even listen to you because everything that we argue from is from the New Testament, which church, trust me, is not tainted, is inspired, is right. And so we can trust this word, but just respectfully just decline to speak to them. So that's one of the reasons is we need to understand what is our relationship with the law because there are those going around teaching a false relationship with the law. But the second is the opposite of that, is what we call antinomianism. It's anti-law. It's the idea is that, man, we have been set free from sin, from the law in Jesus, right? So we are under grace, and, and so therefore I can live any way I want to. I can go and live the desires that I like. I can pursue the, my dreams, perform my lusts, do what 
I want, and so therefore I get to live under what I want to do. Righteousness doesn't really matter because Jesus forgave me for all the things that I've done wrong. That's the complete opposite. And But what we're going to see as we journey through this morning and, and, and in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, particularly uh, the rest of chapter 5, is that actually Christ calls us to a higher obedience than the law can ever call us to. Jesus will say in, in Matthew 5 verses 21, the next section that we're going to look at, he says, you, you have heard, do not murder, but I say to you, under my authority, that if you have been angry with someone in your heart, you have committed murder. He will go on and talk about lust, and he says, you have heard, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, under my authority, that if you have looked at a woman lustfully in your heart, you have committed adultery. There's this higher standard of righteousness that Christ calls us to. And so there's this need for us to be obedient. We can't just live our lives the way we want to. And, and we say this often, we are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Does that make sense? And so there's this need for us to live out this life of obedience. Because ultimately what Christ is calling us to, to obey him, is a greater form of righteousness than what the law can give. Paul will talk about it like this. He says it, it, the, the law's ability to make us righteous is elementary. It's like going to crash or going to daycare. It's like my little boy Malachi. The law's standard of righteousness can only really make you like a baby. Getting your nappy changed, have to be woken up every couple of hours to be fed. You're you dependent completely. There's this Lack of graduation. But what Christ wants to do in us is that he wants to make us more and more holy. He wants us to graduate. And church, listen to me here. If you follow Christ, if you pursue him wholeheartedly, he is going to make you holy. You're going to become holy. He's going to start working in your life and taking out the sin. That's what he does in you. And that's what we can look forward to. But we still have to ask ourselves the question, how long does the authority of the law last for? Um, how long does it last for? Because Jesus says these words. He says, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. And so this whole section that we are looking at this morning, it hinges on this word fulfill. It hinges on, oh, okay, just focus here with me, because I know that tonight, today, this morning is pretty heavy compared to normal. But this word focuses on the word fulfill. So what does fulfill mean? What does Jesus mean? Does, when he talks about fulfill, does he mean that he's come to fulfill the law, that the law must always continue? No, it does not mean that. It does not mean that it will keep on going. It does not mean that we are to supplement the law. It doesn't mean we're just adding parts to it or enlarging it. Jesus is not talking about either. He's not talking about filling it out or expounding on it. He's not even talking about obeying it. Jesus did not say that I have come to obey the law, which he did. But he says, I've come to fulfill it. I've come to fulfill it. So what then does it mean by fulfilling the law? What does it mean to fulfill the law? It means that he, all the law, as we spoke about last week, pointed to Jesus. It pointed to him. He fulfilled it and he completed it, but in that it is, it is 
done. It is accomplished. It is complete. Every aspect of the law is done in and itself. He says every dot and comma, not just parts and aspects, every dot and comma was completed by Jesus. Done. And it points to him. And as a result of that, and we're going to discuss this premise, is this means that the law in and on itself is incomplete until Jesus comes. Does that make sense? If Jesus came to fulfill it, to complete it, before then, it could not be, it was incomplete before then. Does that make sense? So I want to pause there though. Just keep that in your minds. And I want to pause there. And I need to ask the question, why was something incomplete ever given? If, if the law was incomplete, why would the Father come and give the law at all? And to understand this, we've got to realize that the law was given 430 years after Abraham. For, I didn't understand that. You can realize that. 430 years after Abraham, the law was given. That means there were 430 years worth of relationships with God through Adam, through Abel, through uh, Abraham, Noah, Jacob, Isaac, Joseph. All these men had relationships with God before the law even came. They had Ability to trust him and know him before the law arrived. That's incredible. Is, is that this is the idea that Noah had faith in God, that he, when God came and spoke to him and says, build this ark, he did it so for 120 years without ever there being a law saying he must do it. He just heard from God and he trusted in him. There's this faith that was involved and happening in these things, directly under God. And this is what Galatians 3 verse 8 says. He says, this was the gospel pre uh, preached to them beforehand. was this idea of they had faith in God and it was counted to them as righteousness. They were right with God by just having simple faith. So, but then why then would God come and give the law? Well, you see, after Joseph had uh, disappeared out of the scene, Israel had started to grow into a massive nation. Uh, scholars estimate between one and a half million to two million people. That's how big, that's a huge amount of people Israel had grown up to. And while there might have been slaves to uh, Israel, there were this, I mean to Egypt, there were this massive people group. And so once they leave Egypt and head off into uh, the wilderness and off to the promised land, they're going to come across other nations. And God comes and gives them the law because he wants them to be distinguished from every other nation. He comes and gives them the law so that they would not intermarry, so that they would not start serving other gods, so that they would not start doing all these other things. And as a result, when the promised child would come, this promise that was given to Abraham, that through him the nations would be blessed, and this is really talking about Jesus, that when Jesus arrived, there was a distinct Israel. Because if they hadn't given the law, they would have just intermarried and they would have gone along and served other gods and there would have never ever been this defined Israel to point out where the Savior came from. Does that make sense? So there needed to be this distinction of Israel. And that's why this law is given. This law is given to them so that they might know when the Savior of the world came. We see this in Galatians 3 verse 19. Paul says it. He says, why then the law? He asks that question. He said, it was added because of their transgressions until the offspring, 
talking about Jesus, should come to whom the promise had been given, Galatians 3. So let's go back. That's why the law uh, was given if it was incomplete. But how is the law incomplete? Well, we even see that in the law itself that it's incomplete. That the sacrifices are given daily. There were sacrifices that people had to give daily because of their sin. The law never ever achieved the righteousness in which it was required. The people who obeyed it regularly had to give sacrifices for their sins. It was not good enough. They could never do anything that was good, uh, good enough for it. Even if we look at Pentecost, we, I'm not Pentecost, even if we look at the Passover, they would have to come once a year and sacrifice in Jerusalem. The high priest would have to come and, and sacrifice a lamb for the nation because he realized that they were sinful. The law could never achieve the righteous standard in which it was given. And what would happen is this high priest, who was in him and himself not good enough either, he would have to come and he would have to go into the Holy of Holies. He would, before he'd do that, he would have to make some sacrifices for himself. Because he himself was sinful. And if he walked into the Holy of Holies as a sinful person, his sin not forgiven, he would die in an instant. And so what they would do is they would put bells on his clothes. And they would tie a rope around his foot. So that as he walked into the Holy of Holies, they would hear if he was still alive or not. And if the bells stopped for a long period of time, they would start pulling on the rope. And if there was no response coming back, they would drag him out because he would have been dead. And so the poor man had this fearful job. Every year he would go in and eventually he would die. Not always because he was sinful in the Holy of Holies, just because of old age. It happened and somebody else would come and, be re and replace him. There would be a new one and a new one and a new one. This is imperfection even in the high priest who was ultimately making the big sacrifice. Do you see that it is imperfect, the law? But how is it completed in Jesus? Well, man, Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, when he arrives to get baptized, what does John the Baptist say? Behold, the Lamb of the world, the Lamb that would be sacrificed for Passover, here would be Christ, the new Lamb of the world. This, the Lamb that had to be sacrificed at Passover had to be, imp, uh, had to be perfect, without blemish. And so Christ would be perfect, without blemish, without sin, and he would die, guess when? On Passover Friday. And so when the imperfect high priest was sacrificing the, the lamb and atone, trying to atone for the imperfect, with the imperfect law for people for one year, so there was on that same day the Savior of the world, the Lamb of the world, dying on the cross perfectly for all time ever. A perfect sacrifice that lasted forever. We see this um, in, in, in Hebrews at 10 verse 14. It says, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever these who are being made holy. That's Hebrews 10 verse 14. And again, we see when it comes to the high priest, it says, talking about Jesus, it says in Hebrews 7 verse 17, you are a high priest forever in the Melchizedek order. Jesus is continually the one that stands before us and God and makes right for our sin. There is never a changing over of the God, if you will. There's never a new high priest that comes in. 
but we have a high priest that continually stands before us and atones for our sin before us and God, and he is perfect in it. He completes the law. He fulfills it. He does it all. And so here we see this perfect Jesus who completes this imperfect law. But here we, and this, I'll, I'll finish off with this. We're going to look at two things, and then we're going to have communion. Is that we have in Matthew 5, verse 18, Jesus says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, and not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. And what we see in the statement is we see two time clauses. We choose two time clauses. It's a bit confusing, isn't it? He says, uh, uh, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, so at the end of this age, uh, not an iota or dot, not the smallest bit of the law will pass. Or until it is accomplished. That just it seems to be these two time situations. Can you see that? Can you see the two differences until it's accomplished or until heaven and earth pass away? So let's discuss those quickly. The first is until heaven and earth pass pass away. So firstly, what you need to say to someone who comes to you and says that God's idea of heaven and God's ultimate idea of the kingdom is that one day he wants to reestablish his law and we're going to live under the law. No, the law has an expiry date. It's not eternal. There was a starting point and there's clearly an end point. Oh, we can all have a big sigh of relief knowing that heaven one day is not going to be us living under the law. Man, we can eat bacon. We can wear fancy clothes. You know that the law requires every, uh, ladies, you have to wear one item of clothing, one material, not more than one. You can wear more than one in heaven. We're not going to be under the law because there's this new standard of righteousness that is coming. So the law is going to pass away at a certain point. But the question we also need to ask ourselves this morning is who does the law exercise authority over? And this is something I learned this week, is that the law only exercises authority over the physical nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. And, and we've got to realize that, that the law was only ever given to them. We see this as they, they go out into the wilderness. They go and make a covenant at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And he makes a covenant too, not with all the nations, only with the people of Israel. They go into covenant with him. And what's the sign of that covenant was through circumcision. It wasn't with the rest of the nations. It was only through them. Have you ever thought that the, and, and noticed that the law is not evangelistic? You never see it in the Old Testament. You never see the people of Israel going out to other nations and saying, this is the law obeyed. You never see that. We see them going to the promised land. They have just received the law and they go into the promised land. What does God say that he must do? they must do with the Canaanites and the surrounding nations? Kill them. Not, not go and tell them about the law and, and convert them. No, no, kill them. That's a horrible evangelistic strategy. It's not how it works. That's not what they taught Mark when he went uh, overseas. It's not evangelistic. Man, we, we have you, even if you look at Jonah, you might be saying, well, what about Jonah? Jonah went out to, to the other nations and told him. That's true. Jonah went and he, he ran out to the other nations and he went to Nineveh. And what does he say to them? He says, in 40 days, you'll be destroyed. That's all he says to them. 
Return to God or in 40 days you will be destroyed. Then that happened after being swallowed by a large fish and spat out and all that kind of stuff because he didn't want to do it because he wanted them to be destroyed. But he says, in 40 days you'll be destroyed. And what do the people of Nineveh do? Man, they turn back to God. And Jonah, five, Jonah 3 verse 5 says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. And the greatest, uh, uh, from the greatest of them to the least of them, they believe and they repent. That's all. But Jonah doesn't go to them and go, oh, but by the way, now that you've done that, you have, he has 2,000 odd laws that you have to now keep. And you have to go to Jerusalem three times a year to offer sacrifices. No. It, it, they had to just believe and they believed in God and they were spared. They had faith in him. There was, there was no law that was given to them. And we even say, see it with Naaman. We spoke about Naaman, the command of uh, Syria at the beginning of this year. We preached on him a little bit. And we see that he comes, he's got leprosy. He wants to be healed. What does he do here? He goes to Elisha. He comes to Elisha and says, I hear you can do some amazing miracles. And Elisha says, or doesn't even speak to him, he sends out his messenger. And his messenger says to him, go and dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times um, and you'll be healed. Naaman doesn't agree with it, wants to leave, eventually does it. And he gets into the Jordan River and he comes out and he's clean. He goes back to Elisha and says to Elisha, I'm taking some soil with me. I'm I believe in this God and I'm going to take some soil with me and I'm going to go over back to Damascus and I'm going to build myself an altar and I'm going to sacrifice to the God of heaven and earth uh, there and praise him there. Oh, but please also forgive me the fact that my king in whom I serve, he serves another God and I have to go into the temple with him. I've kind of, oh, he has to lean on me when he goes in. So I'm going to be going into that temple when he goes and worships. So please forgive me for that. And what does Elisha do? He says, go, fine. But in doing so, he breaks the law. Because the law required you cannot sacrifice outside of Jerusalem. But the Lord didn't, law wasn't over him. He could just live, he could do that outside. We even think about Ruth is another example. Ruth, a Moabite, not an Israelite. She uh, comes, her, her father, uh, I mean, her husband died, and she looks at her mother-in-law and says, who's an Israelite, and says, your people will be my people and your God my God. She puts herself under Israel. says, I will become part of Israel. And what happens? Boaz, the kingsman redeemer, has to go through a whole bunch of laws in order to marry her. Because now all of a sudden, she was under the law. And so what we see here is that the first exception of the first time slots until it will not pass away is for the Israelites. And we'll look at that now. But the second one is, says, until it is accomplished. Until it is accomplished. This is the second a time clause. Um, and it's kind of like a, a disclaimer, if you will. Essentially what Jesus is saying is, is, the authority of the law exists until the end of the age unless it is accomplished. The, the, the authority that it has will then cease. It will disappear. How many of you have, uh, have heard of Discovery Vitality? Um, anyone got Discovery Vitality by any chance? Okay, just a, a few of you. So let me explain what it is. Uh, Discovery uh, Medical Aid or Discovery Life, or whatever it might be, have an option called Discovery Vitality. And what it is is that if you achieve a certain amount of points by doing exercise and by having your health checked and all these kinds of things, you will go up in different stages of status. 
So you start off at blue, then you go to bronze, silver, gold, and if you had gold for three years in a row, you go to diamond. And the benefits are that things like, uh, Discovery should be paying me money for doing this. Um, the benefits are you get better life cover, you get better payouts, you get all these kind of things. The higher and more healthy you are, the better benefits you get. Does that make sense? Uh, you also get free smoothies and stuff that really motivate me. Um, but every year, I'm on gold this year. I got gold last year. I'm trying to go for gold again this year. And it requires me to get 90,000 points. 90,000 points. Give you an idea. Going to the gym gets me 100 points. Going for a run, flat out, gives me 300 points. Now, Alyssa and I together need to get 90,000 points as a family. Um, and it's quite a lot. You get health checks and all bunch of stuff to get more points and shoot yourself up the, the rankings quicker. But I am under, if you will, the authority of discovery vitality till the end of the age, till the end of this year. I have till the end of this year to get those 90,000 points. And if I don't, I lose my status. I drop down. I get worse benefits. I no longer get gold, which is the highest I can have at the moment. But if somehow I can finish these 90,000 points by the end of this month or next month, discovery do not have any it's been accomplished. My goal has been accomplished. It's law, it's rule over me, no longer has to do anything. I don't have to exercise for the rest of the year if I don't want to. Because I have done it. I have got the 90,000 points. I have received the status. I've already got it. So regardless of what they say, they have no more authority over me. I don't have to exercise as often. I don't have to have my health checks. I can be a slob for the rest of the year if I wanted to. And they couldn't do anything about it because I've already achieved it. Now, that's a really silly example. But essentially what I'm saying is that Jesus has come along and he's gotten the 90,000 points. He has accomplished and fulfilled the law in all its fullness. He has done it. He has done it all. And as a result of that, those of us who are in Jesus, those of us who are become Christians and follow him, we get his status. We get his 90,000 points. We are no longer under the authority of the law. We now are under the authority of Jesus. Does that make sense? And so the law doesn't have any authority over us because it's been accomplished by Christ. We just happen to be with him. We just happen to get the benefits that come with having Jesus. And we have the authority of being under this Jesus. This is why Jesus says, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, absolutely no one, comes to the Father except through me. Except through me. Not except through uh, the law or the law and me. No, the only way we can come to the Father is except through Jesus, because now in Christ we receive this new status. We are no longer under the law. And the greatest way that this is shown to us, church, is in Acts 2 in Pentecost. For, for those of you who don't know, Pentecost was a period in time where it was a reminder where the people would celebrate, the Jews would celebrate the giving of the law. This is a, a period in which the Jews would gather and celebrate the fact that the law was given to them. But what do you see in Acts 2 on Pentecost? The 120 disciples in the upper room, what was given to them? The law? No. What was given to them was the Spirit. 
God poured out His Spirit on the people. He poured out His Spirit on those who followed Him. It is by following Jesus that we receive the Spirit which helps us to a greater righteousness. The Lord does not get us there. Remember, it's elementary. It cannot achieve what's required. It cannot get you there. The only way it can be complete is in Jesus. And when we follow Jesus, we receive the Spirit so that we can live a life of righteousness to the glory of Jesus Christ. It is only by the Spirit that we are able to live this righteous living, this righteous life. It's only by the Spirit that we can look at the Sermon of the Mount and become the characteristics that the Beatitudes have or to achieve the things that Jesus is going to speak about because the Spirit comes and empowers us. And I know I've grown up as a Baptist. I know when we talk about the Holy Spirit sometimes that we can get freaked out. I know we can. And I blame those who, who have gone, uh, those who do it for their own financial gain. But as a result, we've got to realize that it's only by the Spirit that we can do this church. From an experienced campaigner, from a real experienced campaigner in trying to do it in his own strength, let me tell you, you can't. No matter how much you go, I will change. I will be different. Today, I will not do that sin that I have done for the last week. I will not do it. Or I will do that thing that I always avoid doing. In your own strength, you will eventually fail. But it's by the Spirit that if we learn to just to be dependent on Him, it's not this mystical uh, illusion. It's not like the force in Star Wars. It's God in us there to empower us to help us to live for him, to become righteous for the glory of Jesus. Working in us, moving in us, working in us, working in us, working in us. So, in conclusion, in conclusion, what we see here is that it's only through Jesus that the law is accomplished, that we can be set free from the law. The Jews themselves which they are under the law, cannot achieve it. Why? Because the, the temple has been destroyed. And even if they were able to rebuild the temple right now, there's a big mosque in its way. Even if they were able to rebuild that temple, they don't have the lineage of the priests to do the work that they need to do. And even in that, if they were able to do that, it's unaccomplished. For the Jew, the only way to be set free from this law is in Jesus. Because he's accomplished it. For us as Gentiles, oh man, our conscience has shown us that we are sinful. Romans 1 and 2 point out that even without the law, we are sinful. We have rejected the creator for creation. We have come along and we have looked at the moral law and we have, uh, we have broken our own conscious law. Romans 3 verse 23 says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. We have fallen short. And as a result, we only find it in Jesus. We only find it in Jesus. Let us pray. And then we're going to come around to the communion table and we'll ask Mark if you'll join me. Lord, we are just so thankful that we are able to just be set free from the law under you. 
that, Lord, there is no rules that we have to obey in order to be saved. And we can just believe in Christ. We are thankful, Lord, for the Old Testament. We're thankful that it points to you, that you have done all the work. But, Lord, we are so thankful that we have been set free from it in Jesus. Would you empower us, we pray. Would you help us to be able to live the life that you desire us to? By the power of your spirit, we ask. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.